All right, let's see if we can get. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate being here. I hope we uh, are able to to make an impression on uh, a whole bunch of minds. Now, uh, with education, I think it's important that uh, the speaker, the educator, <clears throat> opens your eyes, uh, opens your eyes to the truth. Uh, the truth is is simple and easy to explain. So. I hope what you've received from the other speakers that have talked to you so far is an opportunity to see what's going on. Not necessarily to believe them, but to make it your own as far as an education is concerned. All right. If all looks okay for you, uh, well, we'll go on. You know, I, I've been at this for, for a long time. I've uh, I've been practicing medicine since uh, 1971, 72. Uh, so that, that makes me having been in the practice of medicine for over, over half a century. I've, I've taken care of 12,000 patients. What I mean is I've, I've actually touched them. I've, uh, I've talked to them. I've, I've helped them with problems. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the McDougall program. Right now, the McDougall program is a, a telemedicine program. We take care of people all over the world. It's a 12-day program of intensive education. I founded a company called uh, Dr. McDougall's Right Foods, which are in 6,000 stores across the country. So you go to the, the, the cup section, the soup section, and you'll find Dr. McDougall's Right Foods in my smiling picture on the shelves in 6,000 stores. We used to run an adventure uh, business, but that was closed down by COVID-19, uh, Mary and I have written uh, 13 national best-selling books. But, you know, uh, I'm at a stage in my life, I'm 70, almost 76 years old, I will be in a couple of days, where the important things in life are, are the children and the grandchildren. You know, that's where I paid a lot of attention. You know, my career uh, over, say, 47 years of writing books and being on the New York Times best-selling list and having some real big successes is, has changed a lot. It's it's gone from different popularities, and as far as dietary prescriptions are concerned, when I started out in the 1970s, uh, discovering the things that I'm going to share with you today, Dr. Atkins, the low carb, the bacon, butter, and brie diet, was very popular back in the 1970s, and uh, I started writing books. And my first books came out in the early 80s, and as I mentioned, I was on the New York Times bestselling list. And I did a lot of work to sell books. And so McDougall became pretty darn popular back in the 1980s. It was interesting. We had the, the, the same uh, literary agent, uh, Robert Atkins and I, I did, Mike Cohen from New York. And Mike, at this time, he says, you know, I, I, I couldn't sell Atkins for anything. You know, people believe in high carbohydrate, low fat diets, vegan, vegetarian kinds of diets. And that's the way it is. And that's the way I thought it was going to continue to be until the end of the 1990s when my, my book publishers at Penguin Putnam, my editors, they came to me and they said, McDougall, you've got to change your writing style. You know, you've got to stop writing about these high-carb diets, vegetable diets, et cetera. You've got to start writing about low-carb because that's going to be the fashion. I said, it can't be. I said, the science is so clear that these are dangerous diets that fail. I said, it really can't be. And the kind of diet that I teach, a starch-based diet, is what you know, people need to eat. Well, I'll tell you, 
my editors at Penguin Putnam were right and I was wrong because the pendulum swung back to the low carb diets. And uh, that's what's been popular, Atkins. And now Atkins has been replaced by the carnivore and the keto diets. But I will here to tell you, the pendulum is swinging back again. The truth is getting out because of all the micro devices. I mean, 68% of people have, have a communication device in their hand around the world. You can't hide any longer the polluters, the cheaters, the liars can't hide any longer. The information will get out. And in the process of getting information, I want to make you aware of a website where you can get the scientific papers that I talk about. Now, a lot of scientific papers are copyrighted, uh, shouldn't be, shouldn't be. A lot of them are open access, that's the way they should be. But a lot of cop are copyrighted and they'll sell them to you for $35, $50 a piece. But you paid for most of this research with tax dollars and as a consumer that bought the products. So it's your research. So, you know, rather than just listening and memorizing, uh, I would like to get involved in your, in your healthcare and look up the research that people are talking to you about, including myself. And you go to this website, Sci-Hub, Sci-Hub, and you put in the digital object identifier, the DOI, and you will be amazed at what you can get. You know, one of the reasons I always wanted to be a university professor is to have access to their medical library. These days, I get a good share of my articles at this source. I want you to be educated. I want this to be yours. Uh, lecture is uh, talking about being too fat. Oh, that's offensive. You know, too fat. How about, how about I call the lecture a lecture about obesity or uh, about how about if I call it instead of too fat, I call it plump, uh, or I could do stout or well-fed or chunky or beefy or roly-poly or well-rounded. You know, I listed every, every description I could have for the condition I'm going to talk about. None of them seem pleasant. You know, I think all of them are politically incorrect. Why is that? Well, it's, maybe it's because people think that it's not right to be overweight. I know there, you know, there's fat is beautiful movements all over the world. There has been in all of my career, but I don't think so. I, I think people want to be trained, trained for a whole bunch of reasons, including good health. But that's not the case. At least two thirds of people in Western countries are overweight and obese. And our children are also overweight and obese. So I want to talk to you about this issue and how we can look at it and how we can solve it permanently not just as individuals, but planet-wide. You may have thought the problem is your fault. You may have thought that the reason that you're overweight or obese is because your stomach is too large for your body, or, or maybe you got stretched out through all the years of overeating. I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or, or you may have thought that it's a problem with, with your genes. There's a lot of research about thrifty genes that occur in animals. Maybe you just got dealt too many thrifty genes. I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or, or, or you might say it's a psychological problem. I'm an overeater. I'm an overeater. That, that, that's why I'm overweight and obese. But I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or it could be I don't get enough exercise. 
That, that's the problem. Everybody can buy into that one. There's something wrong to, with me. I'm to blame. That, that's what the whole issue is about and the diet business is about. It's about blaming you. This is what is termed right now the McDougall moment. This, this is the, the concept you need to understand for you to understand the rest of the lecture. So I, I want to really get your, your attention and, and try and follow along with me about hunger. Hunger is the key to understanding obesity. And if you understand this, you'll understand why 80% of people are overweight or obese. But why we have the kind of dietary programs, shots, and bizarre diets that we have. But you've got to understand the concept of hunger. Hunger, a blinding drive to survive, reminding us that food should be sought and eaten. It's a losing battle for 80% of people. I'm asking you to give in to hunger. To, to win the battle of the ball, just, just get into it. Because, and keep this in mind, because I'm going to remind you of it over and over again in this lecture. When you are hungry, you can't think about anything else. A hungry person only sees food. I, I want to talk to you about the uh, Minnesota starvation experiment that was done during World War II. During World War II, there are there millions of starving people, particularly in Western Europe. And uh, People in the United States, you know, felt sympathy for these people and wanted to understand a little more about starvation was all about. And so the fellow named Ansel Keys set up a study called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment to show some understanding of the poor people who were starving in Europe. I mean, you know, cooking was a major effort securing food. And if you look at the six, 16 most common foods, that are consumed during a famine, you see that they're all starches and vegetables. Even in these Dutch women down in the left-hand corner, they're preparing, they're preparing their meals from tuna bulbs, underground storage organs like potatoes and sweet potatoes and bulbs and corns provided energy for these people, but they were still starving. So Ansel Keys, picture here on the right, uh, Time Magazine cover, very famous guy. Uh, he's the one that invented uh, K-rations, which are the meals that soldiers carried during our recent wars, K-rations. He did the seven country study, which is why, why we have a diet that I believe is the true diet uh, based upon minimizing or eliminating animal foods and instead eating starches, vegetables, and fruits. He did the seven country study. Well, he also, he also did this Minnesota starvation experiment. I want you to tell you, I want to tell you, he's one of, one of the, the most important scientists in the 20th century. So they did this experiment where they asked conscientious objectors, you know, men that wanted to serve their country, but they didn't want to kill. So they found 36 conscientious objectors and they enrolled them in an 11 month experiment in. Minnesota. Okay, what, what these men were asked to do is they were asked to semi-starve. They, they started out the first three months and they fed them a normal diet of 3,200 calories a day. And then they asked them for six months to cut their calorie intake in half. 
to 1,570 calories a day. Now, it's really important you understand this is semi-starvation. This is not starvation to the point of going into ketosis. This is where you have enough carbohydrate, so you keep seeking, seeking energy, carbohydrate. You cut the calorie intake in half, and you're in constant pain. You, you, you don't go into ketosis unless you're consuming fewer than 600 calories of carbohydrate a day. They, they were taking in 1,570 calories of carb, of well, mostly carbohydrate. These are their foods. So it's important that I make that distinction for you. These men were in the suffering, the pain of starvation. Uh, food and eating became a focal point in conversations, reading dreams, and even daydreams. Men watched movies about food, developed uh, new habits of reading cookbooks and collecting recipes. They guarded their food. When they sat down with their companions at the dinner table, they would elbow their companions to get them away from their plate. Uh, they would uh, eat the last crumb and lick their plates clean. Some became upset with other diners who weren't in the starvation program because they wasted food. When you're hungry, you can think of nothing but food. The participants uh, rapidly chewed two to three sticks of gum at a time till their mouths were sore just to take away from the pain of hunger. The men collected food themed items and some even rummaged through garbage cans for food. They started toying with their food, cutting into small pieces and making meals last longer. They increased the use of spices and salt to add flavors and they became isolated, described themselves as feeling socially isolated. One man was so upset and he wanted to get out of the experiment. And so what he did is he chopped three fingers off of his hand to get out of, get out of the experiment. He, he was, it was so too much for him. The volunteers felt a decrease in sex drive. All interest in women and dating was lost. Symptoms of anxiety and depression became common, developed uh, physical things like uh, gastrointestinal distress, dizziness, headaches. They became shrunken shrunken faces and bellies and they lost their hair and the ribs were protruding and you know some lost 50 pounds 33 uh, percent of their body weight